0: Happy Daylight Savings to all who observe. Um, What I I actually mean, though, and this is the truth, is I only wish a Happy Daylight Savings to all of you who don't have little kids, Um, right? You guys remember, you're in the golden age right now. You're like an extra hour of sleep. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old, and they don't know the difference between 5 and 6 a.m. So um, my day got started really early today. Um, but yeah, it, it is, for most of us, it's a great, this is the good time change, other than, you know, it getting dark at like 4.30 p.m. Um, one more announcement, actually, just, just because this is one that's really important to me. Um, starting tomorrow night, we have another school of theology class starting. This is one that we offer. All right. Yes, that must be Susan, Mr. It was. It um, was. <laughs> This is a class that we offer regularly, every single fall we offer it, so many of you have already taken it, but this is our biblical interpretation class, so if you want to learn more about how to read the Bible well and how to read the Bible along the intentions of the authors of the Bible, um, this class is for you. It's Monday nights for five weeks at 6.30. We would love to see you there, so you can still sign up for that online. All right book of Philippians. This is the fourth week in this series. We call it a book, but um, it's it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a Roman colony called Philippi. Paul himself had actually planted this church 10 years prior to writing this letter. He was imprisoned in Philippi. An incredibly dramatic story from the book of Acts takes place that results in the first Christians in Philippi coming to faith in Christ. 10 years later, Paul's in prison again in a different city, And he's writing a letter to this church that he loves. And when you read this letter, you get a sense of Paul's deep love for the Christians in this city. And he's writing to encourage them and instruct them and build them up in the faith. Now, today's passage is the kind of passage that makes me really happy for series like this, where we get to really take time and look at every single section. Because if you're just reading the book of Philippians, this is the kind of section where you won't even think twice about it. You'll just kind of read. There's really cool stuff before it. There's some really cool stuff coming after it. And this kind of like fades into the background and that's unfortunate because when you see what paul's doing in this section and the reason he's done it in the place and in the way that he has i believe there's incredibly powerful and instructive stuff for us so let's start by reading it. it's fairly short section philippians 2 starting in verse 19. i hope in the lord jesus to send timothy to you soon so that i too may be cheered by news of you for i have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death, In a, in a little bit, we're going to go through this and, and point out some of the details. But first, we have to understand like why this is even happening here. It feels, when you're reading the letter, like this weird shift. And it can feel kind of anticlimactic. If you were here last week, you know that the section in Philippians 2 that leads up to this is like some of the most, I'm not exaggerating, some of the most powerful theology in the entire New Testament. Paul's like, Jesus lowered himself to the point of being a servant, to the point of death on the cross. And because of that, he's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father and been given a name above every name. And then he's like, so anyway, I'm going to send you Timothy and Epaphroditus. And and you're sort of like, what's what's happening? And if you're really familiar with reading the New Testament, you may even notice that this doesn't feel like the middle of a letter. If you're a big New Testament reader, this might feel to you like the end of one of Paul's letters. Because often this is kind of how he wraps things up. He'll do all of the theological instruction and then he'll end by giving some kind of like the laundry list. Like, hey, I'm sending Timothy, so-and-so says hi, we're going to, you know, this person's going to come, I commend them to you, you should trust them. It's the kind of stuff that comes at the end. It feels so much like that part of a letter that there are actually some scholars who advocate for viewing Philippians as two letters who say originally, this was two letters, we should have first and second Philippians, and this is the dividing point. I, I though, and, and South Valley kind of follow the majority of scholars in not seeing it that way, and I think you'll agree, once you see why Paul put this where he put it, it stands out not just as belonging where it does, but an essential part of the point Paul's making. So you just have to do what you always have to do. This is why things like School of Theology tomorrow and, the, and for the next few weeks are so important. You have to learn to read people like Paul in context. And that means understanding what's the overall point he's making and how does this little section fit into it. So a little bit of review is necessary. We talked a few weeks ago about the kind of thesis statement of the letter to the Philippians. It's in chapter 1 verse 27. Paul said, only let your manner of life, and that phrase manner of life is a citizenship phrase. It Talks about being a citizen of a particular kingdom and living according to the values of that kingdom. So what Paul's communicating is, as citizens of heaven, live worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Thesis statement. Listen, live worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? It looks like being unified. I mean, he's like planted the flag of this letter. I want you to live worthy of the gospel. And that means striving side by side with your brothers and sisters in the faith, same mind, same spirit. As he begins chapter 2 and goes through the first half of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, he continues the same theme. I want to look briefly at it again, so we're set up to read our section. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, pause for a second, Isaac pointed this out last week, but none of those are being presented as real questions. These are rhetorical questions. The answer to all of them is obviously yes. So what Paul is saying is, in light of the fact that we have encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, because we have those things, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see how that harmonizes with chapter 1, verse 27. He's saying... Here's how you can complete my joy. Isaac talked last week about how, like, the end of that sentence would be very different for most of us, right? Here's how you can complete my joy. Maybe start by getting me out of prison. Complete my joy by orchestrating a prison break and and getting me free. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say complete my joy by praying for my freedom. He says complete my joy by being unified. It's incredibly powerful. Unity is that important to Paul, and we'll keep looking at why as we go on. But then this is the really important transition. And this is the kind of thing that's very easy to miss, but you have to follow Paul's logic. He says, be unified. And he starts explaining how to be unified. And the first thing he talks about and spends all his time focused on is humility and selflessness. Be unified. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to give the example of Jesus, in the incarnation and the death on the cross as the highest possible example of that kind of humility. But do you see the connection Paul's making? He goes, what will complete my joy? My joy will be complete if you guys are unified. What will be, make you guys unified? Humility. And this is like immediately intuitive when you think about it. Like how can you possibly be truly unified with somebody who you think you are more important than? It's, it's not possible. In your marriage, in your relationship with your friends, in your, if, you're, if you're a teenager or a child, your relationship with your parents, if you think you are better or more important or more significant, if you look at somebody else with condescension or even with like envy or conceit, to the degree that you do those things, you will not be able to be unified with that person. It's just not possible. So there's something deeply, deeply practical here that's like the first step in understanding what Paul says. Do so you wanna be unified? Count others more important than you. Don't look out just for your own interests, look for the interests of others. And again, this is so obvious, like how much more unified will two people be if each person is looking out for the interests of the other person? How much more unified than if they're both seeking their own interests first and foremost? And so he has this incredibly practical first point. You want to be unified? you got to be humble. You have to make less of yourself and make more of other people. That's the path to unity. But here's the thing. That's like a a practical argument. It's really important. But it's not the deepest thing that Paul is after. For the Christian, unity is not first and foremost just about getting along with each other or being nice to each other. You can get along with and be nice to people without even loving them, without valuing them more highly and for the christian there's a there's a deep essential spiritual reality at work when there is actual deep true unity and that's what paul's after and if you want to see like the clearest most powerful teaching on this in the entire new testament it doesn't actually come from paul it comes from jesus in the gospel of john john 17 jesus is is about to be betrayed he's praying for the disciples and in his prayer, like the, the whole prayer is worth reading if we had the time, but in the midst of that prayer, he's praying for his 11 disciples. Judas is already gone at this point. He says, I do not ask for these only, it's Jesus praying to the Father, but also for those who believe in me through their words. Pause for a second. Did you know, I, every time we read this in church, I point this out because it's so powerful to me. Do you know that Jesus prays for you in the New Testament? Like that's you if you're a Christian. How'd you become a Christian? through the words of the apostles directly or indirectly you may have sat down and read paul's letter to the church in ephesus or read matthew's report of what jesus said and did you may have had another christian explain to you what they learned from the bible whatever it is you became a christian through their word and so jesus it's like the most beautiful moment jesus in john's gospel prays for you and praying for the disciples but not just them I also pray for every single Christian who will ever live. How powerful is that? And here's what he prays for them. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You have to let that sink in. Because that is one of the most like, crazy, powerful things the Bible ever teaches. If you're a Christian, um, you believe, whether you understand this or not, that as over time you can grow and learn these kinds of things. This is like fundamental Christian theology. God is one God who eternally exists as three persons. And so you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But Christians believe that those three persons exist in a perfect unity. It's one single God. And so Jesus here, the Son, who is himself God, is talking to the Father about the unity that they have. There is no higher unity in all of existence than the unity that exists within the Trinity. Okay? But what does he say? I want them to be one that they may be in us in a manner analogous to the unity of the Father and the Son. I mean, can you imagine a more powerful statement about Christian unity? Jesus goes, you and I are one, Father. It's one God. And I pray that they may also be in us. Now, you'll never in this life achieve a level of unity with God that even comes close to what, what exists within the Trinity, of course. But there's this powerful analogy that that's the kind of unity that's, that is, is for us to be aiming at. And Jesus says why. He goes, in order that, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So think about that, that chain of logic. I'm praying for every Christian that they'll be united in a manner analogous to the way that the Father and Son are united so that when the world sees that kind of unity, they believe that I'm from God. They believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. I mean, Jesus is saying the most powerful apologetic that the church has, the best case that the church can make, is unity. Do you start to understand why Paul says, here's what would make my joy complete for you guys to be United Paul understands this is what will show the world that Jesus is who he said he was and here's the thing like look at the world around you right now that kind of makes sense like there's a spiritual power to it but there's also something deeply like natural that you go yeah everybody's as divided and tribal as possible and so when a bunch of people who have a bunch of differences can come together and be united that shows the world there's something going on there. And what Jesus is saying is what they're gonna know when they see true unity is that God sent Jesus in the incarnation. That's incredible. And Paul says, how does it start? Humility. You gotta count others more important than yourself. And he presents as like the highest possible example of that, Jesus. He goes, because of Jesus' humbling of himself, from equality with God to humanity to servanthood to death, not just death, but death on the cross. That's how much Jesus willingly lowers himself. And as a result, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he just starts talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so again, your gut tells you, okay, well, he switched to something different, but he hasn't. And now that you have all of that in your head, be united, value others more than yourself. Don't look just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Now look at what he says about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly that shortly I myself will come also. If you're familiar with this, the New Testament, the book of Acts, and some of Paul's letters, you know Timothy is, is an incredible guy. He's one of Paul's closest missionary companions. And if you really know the story of Timothy's life, you know that he's serious about his faith. There's one thing that Timothy did. That is the dead giveaway that he's incredibly serious about his faith. Anybody know what it is? He got circumcised as an adult. Drew's gonna raise, you were in first service, that doesn't count. <laughs> and you're a pastor, more importantly. <laughs> he's trying to be helpful. Listen, Timothy, mom's Jewish, later became a Christian. His dad is almost certainly pagan. He was not raised Jewish because he was not circumcised as a child. And so he, at some point, becomes a Christian along with his family. He learns about the gospel primarily from his mother, if you read uh, Paul's letters. And somewhere along the line, Paul meets him and invites him to come on the mission field with him. There's just one problem. Paul's mission field is first and foremost to the Jewish community. He goes and preaches the gospel in synagogues before he goes and tells Gentiles. And so what would it mean for him to have with him a guy who's not circumcised? If you read Paul's letters, you know A person does not have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Paul wrote like literally entire letters about this. Go read the letter to the church in Galatia. It's all about how you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. So Timothy didn't have to be circumcised. But he knew if I'm going to minister to Jews, if I don't want to put a stumbling block between me and my Jewish brothers and sisters, I'm going to do this incredibly painful, costly thing just so I can be a more effective minister. That's how serious he was. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but I, I would like to imagine that at some point Timothy came to Paul and was like, hey, I had this great idea. What if I'm like minister to the Gentiles and you could go to the Jewish people and I could just go to the Gentiles who don't care if I'm circumcised or not. And then incidentally, not my main purpose, but incidentally, I wouldn't have to do that whole thing that we've been talking about me doing. You want to know how serious Timothy is? He doesn't do that. He just goes, yeah, for the sake of the gospel, I'll do this thing that I don't even need to do. Spiritually, theologically, it's not necessary but I'll do it for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says some incredible stuff about him that shows you kind of his base level character, but then that gets brought out specifically by the way Paul talks about him. He says, first of all, that that Timothy is concerned, will be concerned for their welfare. And that word for concerned, a couple chapters from now, that same word will be used, but it always gets translated anxious. And that gets at the heart of what this word means. It's, It's about like an internal disturbance that you feel. So he's not just like worried about them. Paul goes, this is a guy who will deeply, like at the level of his being, be worried and anxious and concerned for their welfare. Starting to see what he's doing. Then he says, other people seek their own interests. Not Timothy. What does that make you think of? We just read earlier in verse four of the same chapter, Paul says, be humble. Don't seek your own interests, but the interests of others. And so right now, in exactly the same language, he says, Timothy is concerned for you, not himself. He doesn't seek his own interests. He compares himself, or he, sorry, he rather, he, he describes Timothy as somebody who relates to him like a son with a father. That's incredibly like, beautiful, powerful imagery. How close does Paul feel to this guy? He's like a son to me. And this is an idea that in the Jewish thought that Paul and Timothy both would be, have been exposed to, especially Paul, this is, this is a very powerful idea that the Talmud, which is this collection of Jewish rabbinic teachings, talks about how if a man teaches another man's son the Torah, that man, it's as if he begat him. And so not in competition with his birth father, but the idea is that's the level of intimacy. When you teach someone the Bible, it's a relationship like a father to a son. That's the relationship Paul has with Timothy. And it's, it's sort of a side note, but it's, I feel like we have to talk about it just for a second. This is something that the church desperately, desperately needs. For people who are older and more mature in the faith to come alongside those who are younger in the faith and lead them through the scriptures, through prayer, through their life. This is something that's both like biblical and also incredibly practical. Do you guys have any idea how hard it is to become an adult in 2023 in America? Like that transition is brutal, it's brutal. You guys who got to do it in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, congratulations, everything was pretty simple back then. <laughs> can you imagine being 18, 19, 20, 21, all you, all you 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds are like, I can imagine, I'm doing it right now. We need each other. And I'm talking like you know at the first level about people who are literally biologically older, but this doesn't, it doesn't even have to flow that way, this is more about people with spiritual maturity and experience who understand the Christian life and understand scripture and are walking alongside younger Christians to lead them in the faith. That's something we desperately need. And so if you are an older Christian, if you're a more mature Christian, these are relationships you should be seeking out. And we at South Valley would love to help facilitate that. If you're a younger Christian who's going, listen, I would love to have an older, more mature Christian who can who i can reach out to who can talk to me about the bible who can help me understand who can pray for me give me advice or if you're an older more mature christian and you're feeling like you have that to give not perfectly don't think i'm only talking to people who like have the entire new testament memorized and know the answer to every theological question i just mean if you've been a christian a while if you've been reading the bible a while and you say hey i think i could actually maybe help somebody read through the new testament for the first time meet up with somebody and pray for them regularly please come talk to us those are connections we'd love to make And you see in the example of Paul and Timothy how powerful it is. You end up with this leader in the church who Paul can commend as the person who's practicing the kind of selfless humility that he wants to see in the readers of his letter. And last he says, he has served with me in the gospel. And the word he uses for served is the Greek word doulos, which can mean servant or slave. Just keep that in mind for later. Uh Uh-oh. Is that the beginning of, oh, All right, did I do that? That's my classic Steve Urkel question when something goes wrong. (laughs) Did I do that? We're gonna blame it on the sound booth, they can't speak for themselves. All right, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus' name is a pagan name. It means blessed by or favored by Aphrodite, the Greek goddess, goddess of love and beauty. So we don't know much about him other than the fact that he was almost certainly, just by his name alone, raised in a Greek pagan household named after the goddess of love and beauty in Greek mythology. And at some point, he became a Christian. And so Paul commends him back to the people who first sent him. So here's how you can see this. He says, I'm going to send to you Epaphroditus. Skip down a little bit. He's my fellow worker, and he's your messenger and minister to my need. So the Philippian church had heard that Paul was in prison, and they had sent Epaphroditus as like an ambassador to go and get information from him and to help him. And Paul says, I'm sending him back. And look at some of the stuff he says about him, especially after what we just saw him say about Timothy. He called Timothy my son. He calls Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. The word he uses for soldier is a Greek word that means soldier, and, but it was often used in Roman military documents when a senior officer is commending a lower-ranked soldier. So if a soldier does something particularly impressive or worthy of commendation, a Roman military officer would call him soldier using that word. So we don't know for sure, but there's a good chance that's what Paul is trying to invoke here. This is a guy who, as I send him back to you, you guys need to know he's the real deal. He's worthy of your respect. He has risen in the ranks. And he says, he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. The word for ill there, um, it's a word that definitely often means ill. So there's a good chance that's what it means. That's why it's a good translation. But in other parts of the New Testament, that same word is used to mean weak and specifically weak as a result of having suffered persecution. So Paul, for example, in one of his other letters to the church in Corinth will say, um, I, I will boast in my weakness because when I am weak, God is strong. Very famous verse. Same word. So we don't know for sure. It's, it's possible. Some of your translations will say weak. It's possible he's very sick or it's possible he's weak and there's a good chance that it's because of suffering persecution. Either way, He's near to death. It's really vivid in Greek. It literally means he was death's neighbor. Death was his neighbor. Picture him being next door to death because of how weak or how sick he was. And here's what's incredible. He goes, yeah, he was sick. He was near to death. And you know what he was worried about? You guys. Remember what Paul's been saying? Unity through humility. Not seeking your own interests, but caring about what other people need. He goes, he was sick. He was about to die but he's been longing for you guys because he was worried that you would hear he was sick and worry about him. That's pretty incredible. He can't wait to go back and reassure them, I'm fine, stop worrying. That's incredibly admirable. But he's better, and so I'm sending him back. And then Paul says something that is like the dead giveaway about what he's doing in these paragraphs. He says of Epaphroditus, he nearly died for the work of Christ. When he says he nearly died, it's it's the Greek Mechrithanatu. He was to the point of death. And it's exactly the same Greek phrase that he used earlier in the same chapter to describe Jesus. Jesus, the highest example of humility, was obedient Mecharithanatu to the point of death. Skip down like 15 verses. And he says, Epaphroditus went to the point of death for the work of Christ. And he doesn't just do it about Epaphroditus, I told you a second ago, that he calls Timothy a doulos. He has served with me in the gospel using the word doulos, servant or slave. Earlier in chapter two, he said the exact same word to describe Jesus. Jesus took the form of a doulos. So what's Paul doing? Paul says, the thing that will complete my joy is for you guys to be united. Now, how do you do that? You gotta be humble. You gotta think about others higher than yourself. Here's the highest example of that imaginable, Jesus, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. But that's like too big of a gap you to jump. And so let me just tell you about some real flesh and blood human beings who illustrate what it looks like for a human to pursue that kind of thing. He's giving you real life, flesh and blood, living examples of what humility that's seeking after the example of Jesus really looks like. This is actually something that Paul does all the time. In the next chapter, he's going to be way more explicit about this. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, brothers, same book, brothers, join in imitating me And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's exactly what he's doing in a much more subtle way in this section. Imitate Christ. How do you do that? Well, step one, imitate some people who are imitating Christ. Paul in another letter says this more famously. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if you're like me and you have any ounce of self-awareness, you read that verse and immediately think something like this. You know what I'm talking about? The thing I love about this, Pastor Matt Kirkland from our Hollister campus posted this like three days ago and I was like, oh yeah, that's going in the sermon immediately. But I actually like it because it's it's kind of funny, but more importantly, it actually shows in a joking way how this process is supposed to work. You're presented by Paul with the highest conceivable example, Jesus Christ, God himself. Who lowers and humbles himself to the point of the death of a criminal on the cross. But you go, okay, well, I can't do that. And Paul goes, don't worry, I know. I'm going to send you Timothy. Timothy's selfless. He cares more about the needs of others than the needs of himself. He's going to be anxious for you. I love this guy. And how about Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is like a fellow soldier in the gospel. He was sick to the point of death, and he was worried about you guys and how worried you'd be about him. These are the people I want you to imitate. So he gives you these real life examples that are like rungs in the ladder that you're going up toward the ultimate example. The highest example is Christ. But you and me, we need these like mediate examples with the virtue that we want to imitate that can draw us up toward the highest example. Most of us, myself included. It's like, it's, it's too scary, it's too impossible, it's too out of reach to be like, Go be like Jesus. So Paul goes, in the meantime, you could be like me. You could be like Timothy. You could be like Epaphroditus. you got to understand, there's no arrogance in that for Paul. He's not being like, be like me, because I'm perfect. He's going be like us, because we're trying. And we're probably a couple steps ahead of you guys. So imitate that. So he's given you, it's not accidental. It's not the ending of the letter. He's given you the highest example, and then he's given you these immediate examples. Who are enacting the virtues that you want to imitate. And we need examples like that. We need them in real life. We need them in our churches, we need them in our friends groups, We need them in the world. And so I want to share with you guys, as, as we sort of come toward a close here, like how vague that was, I'm going to generally start approaching the end of the sermon, but don't get any ideas. It's brutal, too, because this is daylight saving, so you guys are like, "I was ready for lunch about an hour and a half ago." So, pastor, let's get it together. This is a picture that I took in 2012 in Cambodia. I was participating in a pastor's conference there. And um, some of you may have seen this picture before. It's been a lot of years since I've shared it. It There's a picture of an activity that they did at the conference where they had the pastors wash each other's feet. And it's not super clear necessarily what's happening here, but there's a younger pastor who's washing the feet of an older pastor. And the older pastor is sobbing. And, And the picture doesn't necessarily show this, but in real life he was sobbing uncontrollably really. You go, why? Why is he crying? Now, here's a two-minute explanation of something that deserves a lot more time. In Cambodia in the 1970s, there was a genocide. Some of you might be familiar with this. Unfortunately, not enough of us are. It didn't happen that long ago, but we don't talk about it that much um, in this country. It was within Cambodia, it was a Cambodian group, a a communist group called the Khmer Rouge rose up and what they were trying to do was create a like agrarian farmer utopia within Cambodia. So they started killing people who were of the higher classes or people who were highly educated. And so systematically they were just eliminating anyone who didn't fit their vision of like this perfect agrarian utopian society. Now the result of that was that they killed somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million of their countrymen and that number already sounds like kind of hard to conceive of but just so you know the weight of that that's that represents about 25 percent of the entire population of the country so the khmer rouge killed one quarter of cambodia their own countrymen and more than that left because tons and tons of, of people fled the country and when you're there i've been there a couple times it's, it's odd you actually there's like an entire generation that's missing And it's kind of captured in this picture because you have like the young and the older, but the middle age is just not there. It's really dramatic. If you've ever been to Cambodia, you probably know what I'm talking about. So here's what you need to know. Every single person in Cambodia has in their living memory this horrific act that touched them personally. When one quarter of the country dies, everyone is connected to that in some way, right? This is your parents, this is your siblings, this is your uncles and aunts, your friends, someone you know was killed by the Khmer Rouge so why is this guy crying that older pastor decades ago before he was a Christian was a Khmer Rouge general that's what they said in English I don't know exactly what it can what you know would translate to but some kind of high-ranking military official in the Khmer Rouge meaning he represents both like symbolically and literally The most horrific thing that ever happened in Cambodia's history. That young pastor who's washing his feet knows that. Somebody he knows, somebody he loves, died during that time because of people like that man. Somewhere along the line, he came to faith in Christ. His sins were forgiven. He became a pastor and here they are together at the conference and this young man who could and by all human reason, would think never. There are some things I can't forgive. There are some people who I won't can be united to. Instead, what does he do? He gets on his hands and knees and washes that man's feet. Think about Jesus. Highest, imaginable, lower, lower, lower. What's the image of Jesus' humility? Washing the feet of his disciples. And so this young Cambodian pastor and and I know he knew who he was because they talked about it often I was with these guys for a couple weeks gets down on his knees and expresses in his actions you and I share something that is so important that is so central everything else pales in comparison I can be united with you because we share faith in Christ because we have both been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ And so whatever evils you did in your life, whatever horrible things you've done, maybe to my own friends and family, I can forgive because I've been forgiven. You picture the woman on hands and knees pouring the expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus and crying and wiping his feet with her hair and the people kind of judging her. You remember what Jesus says? She who has been forgiven much loves much. This young brother knows I've been forgiven by Christ, and so how could I not forgive you? Jesus says, when they're one, the world will know that you sent me. This is the kind of unity he's talking about, unity that breaches the most tremendous gaps imaginable, that heals the most deep, painful wounds you can fathom. And for that young man, it means you're my brother. Same family. How could I who have been forgiven not extend that same forgiveness to you? Flesh and blood examples of what it looks like to lower yourself and humble yourself for the sake of Christian unity. But here's the thing. I said Jesus is this example that for most of us is too high. I think the example of those two Cambodian guys is an example that's too high, at least for me. How do we even get there? So what I want to encourage you to do today is think in just your everyday life, the little things that you can do to put to death selfishness. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What would that look like in your life, day to day? You don't have to just think about like washing the feet of your most hated enemy. I'm talking about when it's daylight savings, and so the baby wakes up at 5 a.m., and you're laying in bed going, hypothetically, you're laying in bed going, (laughs) if I just pretend to be asleep for a little bit longer, my wife's definitely going to get the baby. And then I can be like, oh, oh, thank you so much. You know what I mean? That's never, like, never, I mean, some of you probably have done things like that. That's small, right? It's small to go, I can get up. I can get the baby. You smell the diaper and you go, I could ignore the diaper long enough for someone else to change the diaper. All these examples are very clearly from a 35 year old with a bunch of little kids. <laughs> but think about it in your life if you're a teenager, you see the sinks full of dishes, same thing. You go, well, if mom asks me to do it, then I'll do it. But if I just wait this out, she's probably going to do it. You know what I mean? What would it mean to start cultivating the posture towards your literal family, first and foremost, of selfless humility? I'm not going to look to my interests. I'm going to look to the interests of others. You want to be the kind of person that will wash the feet of your enemy? You better start by doing the dishes and changing the diapers. Seriously. You have to cultivate a posture that will ascend those examples, right? You are going to be presented with your brother and sister, brother or sister in Christ in the church, who need some of your time for some reason. They need someone to talk to. They need someone to pray with. And your time is precious and you don't want to give it. And you want to be someone who looks to their interests instead of your own interests? You got to start small, man. Don't think that you're going to suddenly become Timothy or Epaphroditus or Paul if you don't cultivate that in your everyday life in smaller examples. There's a posture we want to develop of thinking of ourselves as less and thinking of others as more. And the thing is, all those little things, and they are little, like most of them really are, but all those little things, they they have this cumulative effect. They all are gathered together and drawn up in your life toward the highest example of Christ. And so it starts with diapers and with dishes and things like that, but pretty soon you're thinking like Timothy, You're going, man, I'm anxious about the well-being of my brother or sister in the faith. You're like Epaphroditus. You're suffering, but you're worried about how your suffering might affect someone else. You might even be drawn up to the point of considering Paul, who's like beaten and humiliated and put in prison in Philippi. And what's he doing in chains? Singing hymns. That's how the church was founded. Then God, think about this. God miraculously shakes the entire prison with an earthquake, and Paul's door opens. How easy would it have been to be like, God set me free, let's go. You know what he does? He stays around to save the life of the Philippian jailer and to save the soul of the Philippian jailer eventually. That Philippian jailer becomes one of the first Christians in Philippi because Paul, Paul's in prison, the doors open. And he goes, that prison prison guard's going to kill himself if I leave. And so he stays. And so you're drawn up. Through the brothers in Cambodia, through Timothy, through Epaphroditus, through the people that you know in your life who exemplify humility and others centeredness, all the way to consider the highest possible example of Christ who sets aside throne and crown and lowers himself to the death of a criminal in order to save you and to save me. And it starts with diapers and dishes. Seriously. And so Paul can say about Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And here's the thing. As Christians, we've been talking over and over throughout this whole sermon about how Jesus is the highest example of humility. And he is. There is no higher example of what it means to be selfless and humble. But he's much, much more than just an example. In his highest act of humility, he accomplishes something real and objective that changes reality forever so you look to him as an example but first and foremost you look to his actions as the thing that changes the cosmic landscape permanently you can go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God you can go from being alienated to being brought near because of what Jesus did at the cross you can go from outside the family of God to within the family of God son or daughter because of what Jesus did When you put your faith in Jesus, you're saved from your sins, you're promised life eternal with him, and you're given the deposit of the Holy Spirit that actually enables you to pursue this kind of humility in your life. Do you know what? I really believe what I'm about to say. The only reason that young Cambodian man could do that is because the Holy Spirit lived within him. I really believe that. A natural human being cannot do what he did. But he had the Holy Spirit. He had trusted in Jesus, and the Spirit empowered him to forgive the unforgivable and to be united with someone who, in any other human circumstance, you would go, not him, God, anybody else. And so because of what Jesus has accomplished, you're saved, and you are empowered to pursue that kind of unity and humility that the church needs. So would you stand with me as we remember? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, King of kings, Lord of lords, Son of God, knows he's going to be betrayed. Tells Judas, what you're going to do, go ahead and do it. That's in the Bible. Judas leaves. He takes bread. and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he said, this is my blood poured out for the remission of sins, for a new covenant. Father, I'm thinking of your your word in another of Paul's letters where he talks about how what you have done is to unite all things. There is a, a cosmic uniting that you accomplish And we're still waiting for the final fulfillment of that. But in the meantime, your church is meant to be the preview of what that will look like. To show the world what it looks like when people who have actually been changed by God interact with each other. Lord, in a world that is as divided and fractured and tribal as ours is, for Christians, for a room like this filled with so many different kinds of people who have no reason to get along, can come together and say, if Jesus saved all of us, what can we not overlook in the pursuit of unity? So Lord, I pray that your spirit would enable us to do that, that we would be united to one another in a way that the world sees and says, something is going on here that shouldn't be possible unless Jesus really was sent from heaven. I pray that that would happen, Lord. I pray that you would give all of us the strength and discipline to do it in small ways, so that we can cultivate the kind of character that eventually can be like Paul singing hymns in prison. In the meantime, we look to you for grace in our weaknesses and inadequacies and failures for the times when we are selfish instead of selfless, knowing that you love us, you forgive us, you welcome us, and you give us everything we need to pursue obedience to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.